Uh, well, good evening. It's uh, good, to, uh, good to see you here. Uh, my name's uh, Kevin, uh, one of the ministers here at church. Uh, one of the things I did today is uh, we started our first week of the Christianity Explained course. Uh, it's an opportunity for people to come and uh, read through Mark's Gospel, uh, have a look at what other kind of key things uh, the Bible says uh, about the person of Jesus. So we started today, uh, but it's not too late to join in. So if you want to join in uh, next week, uh, five o'clock over at St. James, uh, come and speak to me and I'd love for you to, uh, to come and join us as, uh, as we think about uh, who Jesus is. Uh, but we're looking at the book of Jeremiah today. It'd be great for us to uh, pray again as we look at his word. Uh, Heavenly Father, we do give you thanks that we can meet together as your people tonight. And Father, we pray that we would be people who love to hear your word, that we would understand it. And through your word, that we would know more of what you have done for us in the Lord Jesus. And we pray these things in his name. Amen. Uh, now, if, you, uh, if it's helpful, you can write down a, uh, an outline uh, in, uh, in your sermon outline there. But you can see three parts of, uh, of our talk. And we'll be looking at chapters 24 and 25. Now, this is our uh, third week looking at the book of Jeremiah. I hope you've really enjoyed our uh, series so far. Uh, one of the goals is that you would read the book for yourself at home. Uh, right, Jeremiah's a, a long book. Uh, we won't have time to look at every chapter at, uh, at church. Uh, and so we've been encouraging you to go home and read it for yourself. So I trust that's true. Uh, you're all up to date with your homework. All, right, all going well, you would have read chapter 8 uh, through to chapter 14. Okay, I'm looking... Well, anyway, I won't ask you. But uh, uh, I guess um, one thing that's worth saying is that the book of Jeremiah is not an easy book to understand. Uh, and so if you've uh, started off uh, reading the book of Jeremiah at home and you found it uh, difficult, uh, you're certainly not the only one, but I really want to encourage you to persevere. Uh, it's a great part of the Bible for us to understand. Uh, if you haven't started your reading of Jeremiah at home yet, uh, you've been sort of scared off from the very beginning, uh, well, now is a great time uh, to jump in. Right? So your homework for today is uh, all going well to read Jeremiah 15 uh, to 25. Uh, now, if you're not up to uh, those chapters yet, if you haven't even started, uh, don't get too caught up on the, on the reading plan. Just start at chapter 1 or wherever you are and uh, read through at your own place. A great thing for us to, uh, to be reading this book for ourselves. Now, one of the reasons, one of the, one of the many reasons that the book of Jeremiah is hard to understand is the order of the chapters don't always follow the order of events as they happen. Right? So a good example, chapter 24 and 25. Chapter 24 is written after the exile and looks back on, those, on that event. Chapter 25 is written before the exile and looks forward to that event. Right? Now, you would think... Right? If Jeremiah was an engineer, right, you'd put the chapters in the other order. Right? What comes first comes first. What comes second comes second. But that's not the order that he has given it to us. No, we have chapter 24, then 25. But the thing we have to understand about the book of Jeremiah is it's not first and foremost a history book. It hasn't been given to us so we would understand what has happened in that time. No, the book of Jeremiah is a book of prophecy, and instead it shows us God's perspective on those events. The assumption is, as you come to the book of Jeremiah, is you already know what happened in this time in history, and so you've come now to hear the word of God, to see God's perspective on these things, to understand why they happen and why they are so significant. And so what that means, and if we really want to get our heads around the book of Jeremiah, 
we really need to be clear on the historical events as they happened. And so you can see there in your, uh, in your outline of reproduced Phil ta- Phil's table that he's given us, uh, the, ki- the, the outline sorry, of, each of uh, each of the kings, uh, really helpful. So it'd be great for you to keep that in your Bible as, uh, as you do your homework. And I know, I know you'll be doing your homework this week. Yes, very good. All right, so you need to know the kings, the order, but it's also really helpful to have a bit of, a, uh, of the geography in mind as well. So you can see up on the screen uh, a map. Sorry. Uh, you can see uh, a map of, uh, of, uh, of this time. So you can see uh, Jerusalem uh, here. And a bit of an unfortunate place between two big superpowers, the uh, Babylonians on one side and, uh, and the kingdom of Egypt on the other. And so we're going to pick it up uh, with the third king in that list, King Jehoiakim. And uh, there he is ruling in Jerusalem uh, over God's people. Now what happened uh, in the time of Jehoiakim, uh, Jerusalem was, uh, was known as a, a vassal state. Uh, they were kind of subjects of Babylonians, which means they had to pay tribute to them. Uh, now, Jehoiakim got a bit, uh, bit fed up of this, so he decided not to pay any more. And so the Babylonians came knocking on the door. Uh, well, actually, they laid siege to the city. And uh, quite a, a dark time in the history of the city. As the Babylonians come, they gather their huge army around the city. It's a siege that lasts for a number of years. Uh, and eventually the city falls. But just before it does, uh, Jehoiakim dies. And his son, Jehoiachin, right? Make sure you keep those two guys apart. Jehoiachin uh, comes to the throne. But he only rules for three months before the city falls. And so Jehoiachin and some of the people are carted off to live in Babylon, right? And this is, when we talk about the exile, this is what we're talking about, right? The time when the king Jehoiachin and some of the people were taken by force to go and live in Babylon. Now, back in Jerusalem, the Babylonians put another person on the throne, uh, and they gave the name Zedekiah. Uh, So we have these kind of Broadly speaking, these two groups, the exiles in Babylon and the remnant back in Jerusalem. Now, there is a third group, uh, this uh, group of exiles who are living in Egypt. They're kind of not that significant, I think, in the big picture of uh, the Bible's history, but they're mentioned in chapter 24. So just kind of uh, let you know that, I guess. There are these group of uh, people uh, also living in Egypt. Sorry, I'm still, uh, still recovering from my uh, sickness. Hopefully my voice will, uh, will hold out. Otherwise, uh, Brendan said he's heard my sermon already, so he's ready to <laughs> jump up. He's heard it twice. So uh, if I do uh, struggle, I'll give you the secret wink, Brendan, and uh, you can uh, jump up and, uh, and take over. Anyway, sorry, coming back to uh, where we are. So you can see this is the kind of historical context. This is where chapter 24 is set. Two broad groups of people, the exiles up in Babylon and the remnant back in Jerusalem. Right? So you see this context in verse 1 of chapter 24. Look there, 24 verse 1. So after Nebuchadnezzar, king of Babylon, had deported Jeconiah. Uh, now just um, hang on a sec. One other thing just to throw you, all right, just to keep you on your toes, is sometimes people in the Bible have two names. All right, just to... Uh, Make it even more complicated. But uh, Jeconiah is another name for Jehoiachin, right? The guy who was up in exile in Babylon. And in fact, if you look in your Bible, there should be a footnote uh, that tells you uh, Jeconiah is the same as Jehoiachin, right? So just something to uh, watch out as you go. 
So verse 1, after Nebuchadnezzar, king of Babylon, had deported Jehoiachin, son of Jehoiakim, king of Judah, the officials of Judah and the craftsmen and metalsmiths from Jerusalem, and had brought them to Babylon, the Lord showed me two baskets of figs placed before the temple of the Lord. You can see this is the historical context we're in, but now as the chapter begins, we see God's perspective on these events and understand what's going on here. And that comes to us through this vision that comes to Jeremiah, a vision of these two baskets placed before the temple. So you can see verse 2, one basket contained very good figs, like early figs, but the other basket contained very bad figs, so bad they were inedible. The Lord said to me, what do you see, Jeremiah? I said, figs. Pretty observant chap. The good figs are very good, but the bad figs are extremely bad. So bad they are inedible. It's a pretty straightforward vision, two baskets, one good, one bad. But what does it mean? Well, verse 4, look there, verse 4. The word of the Lord came to me. This is what the Lord, the God of Israel, says. Like these good figs, so I regard as good the exiles from Judah I sent away from this place to the land of the Chaldeans. Now, Chaldeans, just another name for the Babylonians. Uh, so we see, coming back to the map, those in, the, in Babylon, the exiles, they are regarded as the good figs in the vision. Now, what does this mean? Well, they are the group of people that God has chosen to fulfill his promises. And so you can see in the verses of follow this, this great expression of God's promises to that group of people. Right? Look there, verse 6. I will keep my eye on them for their good and will return them to this land. I will build them up and not demolish them. I will plant them and not uproot them. I will give them a heart to know me that I am Yahweh. They will be my people and I will be their God because they return to me with all their hearts. So you can see these great promises that are made on behalf of the exiles, that they will be restored, they will come back to Jerusalem, and that God will be at work in them. They will be his people, and he will be their God. So that's the first half of the vision then. The exiles, they are the good figs. What about the other half? Well, look there at, uh, at verse 8. But as for the bad figs, so bad they are inedible, this is what the Lord says. In this way I will deal with King Zedekiah of Judah, his officials and the remnant of Jerusalem, those living, sorry, those remaining in this land and those living in the land of Egypt. So you can see the remnant, those in Jerusalem, they are the bad figs and it includes those uh, exiles in Egypt as well. And what does that mean? Well, it means for this group of people, those who remain in Jerusalem, they will not be part of the promises that God has made to the exiles. In fact, they will be held to account for their rebellion and they will face God's judgment. So look there, verse 9. I will make them the remnant, I will make them an object of horror and disaster to all the kingdoms of the earth, a disgrace, an object of scorn, ridicule and cursing wherever I have banished them. And I will send the sword, famine and plague against them until they have perished from the land I gave to them and their ancestors. So you can see it's a pretty bleak picture, isn't it? For those remaining in Jerusalem, they will face the judgment of God. Now as you look at the map and you see the difference between these two groups of people, uh, one of the things that it raises, this idea we, we talk about of, of God's election, 
the idea that God chooses. God chooses whom he will fulfill his promises. So we see that played out in this scenario. The exiles, they are the ones whom God has chosen to fulfill his promises. Now, as we hear this, the idea of God's election that he chooses, sometimes it's it's an idea that people struggle with as they come to the Bible. And I guess if if that describes you, well, it's worth really thinking through this. If you're a Christian, you want to be shaped by God's word in this. This is not an isolated event that God chooses. Now, we see it time and time again in the Old Testament. We see it in the New Testament as well. In the New Testament, we see all people deserve God's judgment, but God chooses some to save in the Lord Jesus. Now, one of the things, or one of the charges, I guess, that's laid against God when people talk about this idea of election, people say, well, it, it seems unfair, right? It seems unfair that God would choose one group and not the other. Now, in some ways, this charge... Well, it does have some truth to it, but maybe not in the way that you think, because what we have to stand—sorry, what we have to understand—is that what would be fair in this particular case is if both groups of people faced the judgment of God. Right? Those who are regarded as the good figs—it's not that they were somehow better than those who remain in Jerusalem. In fact, we'll see this in chapter 25, right? Jeremiah addresses all the inhabitants of Jerusalem, those who will stay, those who will go, and he says to all of them, you have rebelled against me, rebelled against God, and so you deserve his judgment, right? So what would be fair is if both groups face the judgment of God. But no, what we see here is an example of what the New Testament calls... God's grace, right? God's grace, his undeserved kindness, that he would choose one group of people, those who deserve his judgment, and yet, though they are undeserving, he chooses to make these incredible promises to them, promises to restore them, promises to bring them back to the land, promises that they would be his people, and, and sorry, that they would be his people, and he would be their God. And as we see this, as we see it played out uh, before us in the book of Jeremiah, uh, one thing this rules out, this idea of God's election, is there is no place for boasting on behalf of the exiles. Right? The exiles can't sit there in Babylon and say, yeah, we, we're so much better than those back in Jerusalem. We deserve these promises that are coming to us. Because hopefully you can see that, that, that that's been ruled out. No, there is no place for boasting when it comes to God's grace. The only right response is one of thankfulness. So thank God for his grace, for his kindness to those on whom he has chosen to save. Well, that's chapter 24. Now, as it goes, chapter 24, pretty uh, easy book to understand, uh, sorry, easy chapter to understand in the book of Jeremiah. So hopefully that's an encouragement, right? Pretty straightforward uh, chapter. You should do your homework. Don't forget, right? Read through Jeremiah. Uh, but that brings us to uh, chapter 25. Now, as I said earlier, chapter 25 is set earlier in time. Okay, so we're going to do some time travel today. Okay, hope you're ready. Hold on to your seats. All right, here it comes. You ready? Oh, there you go. Wasn't too bad. Uh, we've gone back in time to uh, the time of Jehoiakim. Right? Don't, don't get him confused with the other guy, Jehoiakim. Uh, he's uh, the king in Jerusalem. The Babylonians are still back in their hometown. 
and uh, Jehoiakim is, uh, is there. There's now one group of people, right? This is before the exile, but chapter 25 looks forward to when that will happen, right? So look there, chapter 25, verse 1, uh, we see this historical context. So this is the word that came to Jeremiah concerning all the people of Judah in the fourth year of Jehoiakim, son of Josiah, king of Judah, which was the first year of Nebuchadnezzar, king of Babylon, right? So this is where we are in history. But then what we see in the chapter is this kind of summary, I guess, of Jeremiah's ministry, right? Verse 2, the prophet Jeremiah spoke concerning all the people of Judah and all the residents of Jerusalem as follows. From the 13th year of Josiah, son of Amon, king of Judah, until this very day, 23 years, the word of the Lord has come to me and I've spoken to you time and time again, but you have not obeyed. Now, when you see Jeremiah's ministry summarized like that, it does sound a little bit uh, disappointing, doesn't it? I mean, imagine 23 years of Jeremiah faithfully proclaiming the word of God. And they, I mean, they weren't easy years for Jeremiah. And yet he was faithful in proclaiming the word of God. And what happened? Well, the people did not listen. Right? And we've seen this already in the book of Jeremiah. We see it again in chapter 25. So Jeremiah's message, verse 5, turn from your evil way of life. Verse 6, do not follow other gods. But verse 7, the results, but you would not obey me. This is the Lord's declaration. So we see that for all the inhabitants of Jerusalem, this pattern of rebellion, of ignoring the God who made them to serve him. And so the judgment comes, verse 8, look there, verse 8. Therefore, this is what the Lord of hosts says, because you have not obeyed my words, I'm going to send for all the families of the north, this is the Lord's declaration, and send for my servant Nebuchadnezzar, king of Babylon, and I will bring them against this land, against its residents, and against all these surrounding nations, and I will completely destroy them and make them a desolation, a derision, and ruins forever. So you can see this promise of God's judgment, and what we learn from this chapter is that judgment will come through the Babylonians as they come to lay siege to the city of Jerusalem. As we said earlier, this is something we see again and again in the book of Jeremiah. This call for the people to repent, their rejection, their disobedience, and so the promise of judgment. But one of the things that we see in this chapter, kind of a a new thing, I guess, in our sermon series, is that Babylon herself will also be held to account for what they have done. So look there at verse uh, 11 with me. So verse 11, this whole land will become a desolate ruin. So it's God's judgment. And these nations will serve the king of Babylon for 70 years. So when the 70 years are completed, when the exile is finished, I will punish the king of Babylon and that nation. This is the Lord's declaration. The land of the Chaldeans for their guilt and I will make it a ruin forever. I will bring on that land all my words I have spoken against it, all that is written in this book that Jeremiah prophesied against all the nations. For many nations and great kings will enslave them, and I will repay them according to their deeds and the work of their hands. So you can see quite clearly that the Babylonians will be held to account. And because of the work of their hands, because of their invasion into the land of God's people, they will face God's judgment. And we know, of course, later on that comes through the hands of the Persians. But as we see this chapter come together, it does raise one of those kind of uh, theological conundrums for us. 
Because what we see in the chapter is these two ideas. On one hand, we see God's sovereignty. And on the other hand, we see human responsibility. Right? So the first half of the chapter, we see God's sovereignty. That these things happen according to the will and purpose of the Lord God as judgment against his people. So the Lord is sovereign. But on the other hand, we see that the Babylonians are held responsible. Right? This idea of human responsibility. Now, as people think about this, they think, hang on, okay, God is sovereign, people are responsible, but, but how do you fit both together? Right? I don't know if that's something you've ever, ever thought about. Uh, it's a great question to really, uh, really wrestle with. Now, we could say, uh, we could say many things about this. Uh, if you want to chat to me more, you can come and, uh, come and talk to me later. I'd love to chat to you because really the short answer is, is pretty straightforward. And that is to say, well, as people who want to know God through the scriptures, we see both are true. We see that God is sovereign, right? These things happen according to his will and purpose. But on the other hand, people are still responsible. They will be held to account for the way that they have lived. And the place where the rubber really hits the road for us is to realize that we will be held to account, right? We will be held responsible for the way that we have lived. Now, the Bible's the Bible's pretty clear about our situation, right? It says that all of us, all of us have failed to live in the, in the way that God made us to live, right? We don't love God with all our heart. We don't love our neighbor as ourselves. And because of this, all of us fall short of God's purpose for us. Now, as we reflect on this, this is what the Bible calls sin, uh, we can point to many different reasons for why that is true for us. And some of these reasons have some validity, but in the end, what we have to see is that we will still be held to account. We will be held responsible for the way that we have lived. And so what we have to come to terms with is that we will be held to account. We will come before the judge, the Lord God. Our life will be played out and the verdict will be guilty. By ourselves, what we deserve is to face God's judgment. Now, I think one of the dangers for us as Christians, right, particularly if you've been a Christian for a while, is that we can hear this idea, yes, okay, God will hold us to account, yes, we deserve God's judgment, uh, we can hear it uh, week after week, and our heart can grow callous, right, we can know it in our head, we think, yep, that's, that's true, I know that's true, but, but it doesn't really weigh on our heart, which is why it's really important for us as Christians to be people who love to read God's Word, who love to read the whole counsel of God, both the New Testament, but also the Old Testament. Because one of the things the Old Testament really helps us with, one of the reasons it's worth really working hard to understand a book like Jeremiah, as difficult as it is, we want to know the whole counsel of God, because what the Old Testament really helps us with is to see the seriousness of our sin. And to come to appreciate the severity of God's judgment. And I think a good example of this is in the part that follows in the book of Jeremiah. This will be the, uh, the third part. So chapter 25, verse 15 to 29. So the third and final part. As we see in these uh, words of Jeremiah, we come to terms with the seriousness of our sin and the severity of God's judgment. And the way that happens is this particular image that is put before us, right? You see the image there in verse 15. Uh, this is what the Lord, the God of Israel, said to me Take this cup of the wine of wrath from my hand and make all the nations I'm sending you to drink from it. 
Right? So the picture you're meant to have in your mind as you read this passage is of a cup. Right? You can imagine what the cup looks like. But in the cup, it is filled with wine, right? filled to the brim. And the wine symbolizes the wrath or the anger of God. And so what we see then in this passage is Jeremiah is told to take this cup of the wine of wrath and take it to all the nations. Now, a couple of things to help us understand the passage before we read it. Uh, the first thing is I think it is not a, a literal thing. I think Jeremiah went on a tour around giving this uh, cup full of wine. I think it's meant to be more of a, of a symbol, right, to help us understand uh, what's going on here. But the second thing that will help us understand the passage is to see that, first of all, this passage applies to the context in which it was given. Right? The judgment that is promised is a judgment against the nations that are listed, a judgment that came for many of them through the hands of the Babylonians. But we also need to see that there is a, a bigger picture here. Right? The very end of this, uh, of this section, well, it talks about how all the inhabitants of the earth will face the judgment of God. And this is confirmed for us as we look at the, as the Bible as a whole. Right? We see this cup of God's judgment is used to describe the final judgment. Right? The time when we will all be brought before the judge, before the Lord God. But the third thing we'll see in this passage is that as we see this image of the cup of God's wrath, it's a pretty horrific picture, uh, one that is meant to confront us. So with that in mind, let me read to you this passage and just reflect on the severity then of God's judgment. So look with me there again to verse 15. This is what the Lord, the God of Israel, said to me. Take this cup of the wine of wrath from my hand and make all the nations I'm sending you to drink from it. They will drink, stagger and go out of their minds because of the sword I am sending among them. So I took the cup from the Lord's hand and made all the nations drink from it, everyone the Lord sent to me. Then the list of nations, so Jerusalem at the beginning, surrounding nations, Babylon at the end. But we'll pick it up, verse 27. Then you are to say to them, this is what the Lord of hosts, the God of Israel, says. Drink, get drunk, and vomit. Fall down and never get up again. As a result of the sword I am sending among you. If they refuse to take the cup from you and drink, you are to say to them, this is what the Lord of hosts says, you must drink. For I'm already bringing disaster on the city that bears my name. So how could you possibly go unpunished? You will not go unpunished. For I am summoning a sword against all the inhabitants of the earth. This is the declaration of the Lord of hosts. So you can see it's a pretty confronting picture, isn't it? This cup of God's judgment. But then what we have to understand, we said this already. The reality is, is that we will all be held to account for the way that we have lived. One day we will come before the Lord God. Our life will be played out before us. Every behavior, everything we've done, every thought, every motivation of our hearts. And if we're honest, we know we have not lived in the way that God intended. And so we expect to hear those terrifying words. Take, take the cup of my wrath. And drink it to the dregs. Well, that's a pretty confronting picture, isn't it? And something for us as Christians we need to really come to terms with. To understand that by ourselves, this is what we deserve. By ourselves, we deserve to drink the cup of God's wrath. 
But as we understand in the severity of God's judgment, well, it's only then that we can appreciate the true wonder of the good news, right? the good news that comes to us in the Lord Jesus. So I'm going to read another passage to you from Mark's Gospel. If you could uh, turn there, Mark chapter 14. This is going to be our sneaky uh, third reading. I've managed to uh, slip in. Right? Mark chapter 14, turn there. And uh, we're, going to, we're going to finish on this passage. So look there, Mark 14. And now while you're turning it up, uh, you can see page 936. Uh, just to give you a little bit of a context of where we are, so we're going to find Jesus in the Garden of Gethsemane. Right? This is the night before Jesus uh, went to the cross. Uh, here he's uh, reflecting on his death that will come uh, the very next day. And uh, we'll see it's, uh, Jesus is really distressed uh, as he thinks about his death that will come. And uh, so he comes to pray to his father. And just a little while after this, Jesus will be betrayed by one of his followers and uh, the events that lead to the cross uh, will begin. So look there, verse, uh, verse 32 with me. So then they, so Jesus and his disciples, came to a place named Gethsemane. And he told his disciples, sit here while I pray. He took Peter, James and John with him and he began to be deeply distressed and horrified. Then he said to them, my soul is swallowed up in sorrow to the point of death. Remain here and stay awake. Then he went a little farther, fell to the ground and began to pray that if it were possible, the hour, the hour of his death might pass from him. And he said, Abba, Father, all things are possible for you. Take this cup away from me. Nevertheless, not what I will, but what you will. Now you can see in Jesus' prayer then to his Father, a reference to the cup, right? The cup that Jeremiah spoke of all those years ago, the cup of God's judgment. But one of the questions we should be asking as we see Jesus pray this prayer is, well, why should Jesus drink the cup? Why should he take the cup from his father? Because, I mean, we know Jesus was perfect, right? And he always lived God's way. In fact, he's the one person who doesn't deserve to drink the cup of God's judgment. And yet, that's what we see in the prayer. Right? Jesus knew that as he went to the cross, he would drink the cup. He would experience the wrath or the anger of his father. Well, how does this make sense? Well, it's as we come to see Jesus' death as a substitute. What happens here is that Jesus dies in our place. Jesus takes upon himself what we deserve. Right? So think to that picture again. Right? You come before the Lord God, the judge. Your life is played out. Right? You see the ways that you haven't lived God's way. And so you expect to hear those fearsome words. Right? Take this cup and drink. And yet for those in Christ, those words do not come. Why? Well, because all those years ago, outside the city of Jerusalem, as Jesus went to the cross, he drank the cup in our place. He took what we deserved and he experienced that himself. And hopefully you can see it. As we understand the context of Jeremiah, we see just how serious this is that we can come to appreciate the length, the width, the height, the breadth of God's love for us, which is poured out at the cross. Right? You think of Jesus as he imagines his death, 
right? I mean, there's all the physical pain of what that involved, the beatings, the mockings, the whippings, the crucifixion itself. But there is more to it. See, as Jesus died, he experienced the wrath of his Father. Mark records the the words of Jesus on the cross. Quoting from Psalm 22, he, he cries out, My God, my God, why have you forsaken me? And we see in the words this insight into the anguish for Jesus as he experiences the wrath of his Father. And yet what do we see in the garden as he prays? He does so willingly. He knows what will happen in those events. And yet he prays, not what I will, but what you will. Jesus willingly goes through this out of his love for us. He takes what we deserve to secure the forgiveness that we so desperately need. So the question is, well, how do we respond to this? As we see the love of Jesus on the cross, how do we respond? Well, the first thing to say if you're here tonight and you are not a Christian, if you're not a follower of Jesus, I mean, we're glad that you're here. Well, the response is obvious, right? It's come to Jesus. As you see the love of him, his willingness to go to the cross, why not come to him and accept him as your Lord, as your saviour? And if that's something you'd like to do or something you're considering, come and speak to me or Troy or someone else and we'd love to chat to you and think more about it. But what about if you're already a Christian? Right? If you've already come to accept Jesus as your Lord and Saviour, how do you respond to things like this? Well, one thing that is ruled out completely is any boasting. Right? You can't say, well, well, I deserve this. I deserve Jesus to die in our place because we know that is not true. No, what we deserve is God's judgment. It only comes to us by God's grace, his undeserved kindness to us. So there is no boasting. The only response is, well, thankfulness. Right? To say those simple words, Jesus, thank you. Jesus, thank you for coming into our world. Jesus, thank you for dying in our place. Jesus, thank you for drinking the cup of God's wrath, of taking what we deserve. Jesus, thank you for securing the forgiveness that we so desperately need. Jesus, thank you. Thank you for all that you have done for us. How about I lead us in prayer and give thanks in that way. Our Father, we come before you in prayer and we recognise that we are people who have failed to live in the way that you intended, that we do not love you with all our heart, we do not love others as we should. Father, help us to see that we deserve your judgment. And Father, we're thankful so much for the love of Jesus. Father, we thank you that Jesus was willing to enter into our world, that he was willing to die in our place. Help us to see the depth of his love and help us to be truly 
thankful. Help us to be thankful for all that you have done for us. And in response to this, may we live to serve you. We pray this in Jesus' name. Amen.